That's a pretty uh, powerful passage, isn't it? The war is over, but the battle is still raging intensely, and we agonize, and we struggle. There's an enemy who's loose, and we live in his territory. We are living our Christian lives out in enemy-occupied territory, as C.S. Lewis said. This is a series that you've walked into the middle of if you're a guest this morning for the first time at Grace Life. This is part three, and it's called The Invisible Battle. And we're looking at the last section in the book of Ephesians. Paul wrote this letter to a church that he planted in the city of Ephesus. And for six glorious chapters, he has just plumbed the depths of the beauties and the riches of God's grace, the power of the gospel, the power of Jesus Christ, his invincible purposes for the church, for the world, for all eternity. And then the last few sections get a lot more practical. What does that mean for us? How do we view our families? How do we view our monies? How do we view our occupations? And then the very last section here, Paul is, as it were, sending us out with, uh, with some orders here as Christians. This is the way you live your life. And he reserved this, this very last paragraph to plant this thought deep in our minds. He says, by the way, as you are going out, know this, the enemy is going to be shooting at you while you try to carry out these orders because there is a battle going on. Uh, that enemy's name is the devil, and he's sinister, he's powerful, he's cunning, he's crafty, and for that reason we have to be vigilant, we have to put this armor on that this passage tells us about. So today... Um, First thing I want us to remember is this. We're about to look at God's Word together, okay? And I, I don't say this enough as your pastor. The primary reason we come together to look at God's Word is not just to fill our heads up with knowledge. It's not just to shove more information and more data in here so it can fall out and leak out, right? This is just a means to an ends. And the end is this, that we would be transformed. Paul Tripp said that so wonderfully here. He said the ultimate purpose of the Word of God is not theological information, but heart and life transformation. If I were a lecturer and giving you a lecture, a little talk today, my goal would be for you to leave with more information, but I'm not. I'm a preacher. So my goal and my prayer is that we leave transformed. We leave with new affections. That's what preaching the good news of the gospel is supposed to produce in us. It's supposed to produce an unassailable joy. It's supposed to a joy that transcends all the circumstances we face here. Whatever our health crisis is, financial crisis, family crisis, whatever it is, this is supposed to produce in us something that's lasting and that can't be threatened by anything this world or the invisible powers of darkness have to offer. So that's why we study God's Word together. It's to be transformed. And that being said, here's the outline I want us to look at this morning from this passage. Really simple, just two points. The first is this, the war is won, but the battle isn't over. And the second is this, we need impenetrable armor. That's a word you don't hear very often, but it's, I chose it carefully. We need armor that can uh, resist anything that the enemy would, would shoot at it, right? And there's other pieces of armor here. There's a shield, but there's also this breastplate of righteousness that we're going to talk about. So point number one, and I need to start my clock here, don't I? I better, that could be really dangerous. Point number one is this, the war is won, but the battle is over. We talked about this just a little bit the last time we met. If you pay attention when you read the Bible, you scratch your head sometimes because the apostles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, say things that don't mesh with us. They say these powerful truths that we know are reality, but yet the, the everyday world that we experience and walk in, it doesn't seem to mesh. For example, the Bible says that Satan, once and for all, was defeated at the cross and the resurrection, right? 
It clearly says that in Colossians 2.15. Let me read that to you. It says this, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I mean, that sounds like Satan's done. He's finished. He's, it's over, right? So we don't have anything to, to worry about. We don't have anything to fear. Satan's, he's, he's done. He's been defeated. He has been disarmed, and, and we are victors. We have triumphed with Christ. And yet you also read a passage like this that tells us, hey, the devil has schemes. He has methods. He has devices. He's very cunning and crafty. So put your armor on. First uh, Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 it was written just 20 years after the cross, right? So nothing had really changed. Jesus was crucified and he was raised from the dead. And, and yet the apostle Peter said this. He said, be watchful, be sober, be vigilant because your enemy, the devil, he walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So scripture paints this picture of Satan is defeated but he's also roaming about like a roaring lion, waiting to, pr to pounce on you and to devour you. So you scratch your head and you're like, dude, what is it? Which is it? Is he defeated or is he still out there wreaking havoc? Because if I look at the world the way that you do, I see Satan wreaking havoc. Don't you? I mean, there's untold tragedies that happen. We know he's behind some of them, not all of them, but we know he's at work. We see his work in our own heart when we're tempted sometimes. And the Bible shows us historically how Satan has tempted um, Christians throughout the ages. So what is the deal here? Is Satan defeated um, and we have nothing to worry about? Or is Satan very much still loose? Because the Bible uses um, language when it talks about him like what I mentioned earlier, 1 Peter chapter 5. In this passage here, it says he has authority. It says he, 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 there's authorities and principalities and powers, cosmic forces of evil in the heavenly places. Uh, the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he called Satan the God of this world and said he still blinds people to the glory of Christ. And I'm like, man, I know he's defeated, but if he's defeated, how in the world is he out there slaying people and destroying families, wreaking havoc, blinding people's minds? Why is he called the God of this age? That is because of this. There is tension in the Bible, okay? Well, I shouldn't say in the Bible, there's tension in the kingdom that we live in now. It's something that we've talked about just a little bit before. I want to elaborate on it, <clears throat> excuse me, a little bit more. It's called the already, not yet kingdom. We are living in the kingdom. Christ is king. He has come. He has regenerated our hearts, and he has promised to make all things new. So we are enjoying this, this dynamic kingdom that we live in. And at the same time, the Bible tells us that there's a not yet dynamic to this kingdom we live in. I don't have a glorified body yet. I can eat all the kale that I can, and I still get sick, right? I still feel terrible. Uh, my kids still yell at each other sometimes. I still yell back at them. I mean, there's a fallenness to this world that we live in still, so there's the not yet. Jesus has not come back finally and gloriously to vindicate his righteousness, to judge the devil and throw him in the lake of fire once and forever, and to make all things new where there's no more sickness, there's no more sin, there's no more disease, there's no more volcanoes or tsunamis or shootings or anything like that. There's no more racial tension, none of those things. They'll all go away. But for now, we live in this tension, don't we? There's a battle. So the Bible tells us this, the war is over, right? The war is over. It was over at Calvary and the resurrection. But we still very much fight a battle. And there's a great historical example that Diane reminded me of after I preached my last sermon, and it is the example of D-Day. How many people know what D-Day is? Let's get our, put our history hats on here. 
D-Day. It was on June the 6th, 1944, and it was a decisive battle that took place in World War II. You know, Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime uh, were, were up against all the Allied forces, okay? I think it was France, Great Britain, and the United States of America, and a handful of others. And there was a decisive battle that was fought on Omaha Beach in Normandy, France. That was the decisive battle. They knew, the Allied forces knew, if they win this battle, then the war is pretty much over. It's over on paper, right? So if they press back the German forces back to that beach and, and establish a beachhead there, they knew the war was over. If the German forces and Hitler push them back into the water and send them back to their countries, then we've lost. By God's grace, you remember what happened on that day? We took the beach, and it cost a lot of lives. I forget the statistics. I should have looked at them. Thousands and thousands of soldiers gave their lives because they knew that battle was that important. So D-Day was June the 6th, 1944, when we stormed the beaches. But did you know this? Did you know that Hitler and Germany didn't surrender until 11 months later? Did you know that? That's called VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. So there's D-Day, June the 6th, 1944, and then there is V-Day, May the 8th, 1945, and there were 11 months in between those two, right? So there's this decisive battle that was fought on Omaha Beach, and everybody knew. All the soldiers, they will tell you, I've read biographies, the soldiers and, and war historians tell you that every combating soldier from that day forward had a fresh perspective. They knew it's over, man. It's over. But here's the deal. <laughs> they also knew that there's still some fighting to do. In fact, if you read history, you'll, you'll remember that some of the most intense, bloody, brutal, violent, agonizing battles took place within that 11 months. Why? Because Hitler knew he was defeated and he was angry about it. And he wasn't ready to surrender. He wasn't ready to wave the white flag yet. See, when we think of victory, we think, if you're like me, I think Satan should be waving a white flag. He should be arrested, right, chief? He should be incarcerated. And maybe, maybe he should be executed for his crimes against humanity, right? But God's ways are above our ways. God gave us this intense period between the first coming and the second coming where there's battles to be fought. Now, we know we have a fresh perspective, hopefully, like the soldiers did. We know that, that we had the victory, that the war is essentially over, and that should color everything we do, everything we see, but we know that there's going to be an intense battle, and we need to, to pay attention um, to what that means for us. So we are between D-Day and V-Day, and it's agonizing, right? Satan has not surrendered yet. He knows his time is short, and he's angry, and we're his targets because we're created in God's image, we're redeemed in Christ, and he hates us. He wants to attack us and destroy us and our families. So we are between, uh, spiritually, we're between D-Day and V-Day. That's, that's what we are living in here. So Revelation 20 says this, the last, the, the last appearing of Christ, it says this, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. See, that day just hasn't come yet, and I hope it comes quickly, don't you? Because I'm ready for the devil to be thrown into the lake of fire. I'm ready to have a glorified body, and I'm ready to not be tempted and give in sometimes to sin, but um, that day hasn't come yet. In the meantime, in the middle ground, we're living in the middle here between those days. This passage says that there are evil days. How many people have felt evil days as a Christian? Doesn't take long, does it? Maybe you've had one this week. Maybe this is an evil week for you. <laughs> 
I feel like I've had an evil week a little bit. Man, it seems like all heck is breaking loose, you know? There's conflicts and, you know, people get sick and kids are arguing. And maybe it's because of this series that we're doing. Every time I've ever preached on the topic of spiritual warfare, crazy things have happened in my family. And I'm thinking, Lord, if this is who I think it is, get them. <laughs> but this is, we have evil days. And listen, evil day is this. It's when things are at their worst because of the schemes of the devil. And that's part of living in the in-between middle ground here. And, and Jesus knows that. And so he reminds us through the Apostle Paul that because of the schemes of the devil, because we're living between D-Day and V-Day, we need armor. And it's got to be good armor, right? <laughs> um, there's, there's a reason why Paul used this war analogy and not a sports analogy or a business analogy. Listen, if there's an evil day in business and, and, and you make some bad decisions and you choose the wrong things, you lose profit, you lose money, you suffer, maybe your job's in jeopardy, right? Eh, nothing you can't come back from. If you're an athlete and it's an evil day and you make a bad cause, the quarterback or throw an interception or get sacked, you lose the game, you lose street cred, right? But this is war. And if you're a soldier and you don't have armor on, you die, right? And maybe you cause other people who were depending on you to live to die. This is serious stuff. And listen, timing is everything here because the time that we're supposed to put the armor on is before the evil day comes, not during. I have found in my own experience as a Christian and in counseling people that when they don't have armor on and the evil day comes, man, it's a hard task to put it on for them or help them understand how to put them on. I mean, you can't excuse yourself from the big battle and go change clothes, right? Satan's not going to give you that luxury. That's why God in His grace and His love is telling us beforehand, look, the devil is loose. He's roaming about. We're in the in-between. We're living in the middle ground. He's sinister. He's powerful. You need armor. And I have provided everything that you need. Here is the armor. Put it on. Wear it because evil days are coming. That's why this is serious. And we need something that's going to protect us. So, um, here's the second point. We need, impen in, we need impenetrable armor. Um, a, a, a few points. If we're living in the in-between, what does that mean? That means there's, there's things to do. Now, often when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about grace, some people love it, but for the wrong reasons. They think that's wonderful. I'm a Christian. Christ has done everything for me. I'm going to sit back and put it on cruise control, I'm on a cruise ship, right? Um, wrong. <laughs> yes, Christ has done everything for you, but that doesn't mean there's nothing left for you to do. I'm not talking about securing your salvation. That's been secured, right? Praise God. No, I'm saying there's work to be done. Scotty Smith said this. He said, the gospel, that is the message about the finished work of Jesus, the gospel eliminates earning, not effort. Merit, gained, not muscle applied. So there's work to be done. There's armor to put on. And what is this armor? Well, you know, Paul, when he wrote this epistle, he was chained between two Roman soldiers in prison. I love that about the Apostle Paul. I probably wouldn't be writing letters to this church if I were in prison. <laughs> I mean, I could think of a hundred other things to be doing, right? But Paul was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's taken advantage of this situation, and he's probably witnessing to these Roman soldiers and guards he was chained to, and he's looking at their armor, and he thinks of an analogy. And so he's writing this, and he tells us that one of the pieces of armor we put on after we put on the belt of truth that we talked about last time is the breastplate of righteousness. Every Roman soldier would put on a breastplate. If you were, uh, if you were an officer, your breastplate would be metal, right? If you weren't an officer, it would probably be leather and have pieces of bone sewn into it, they say, and it would cover your entire torso. 
Um, in fact, the Greek word for that breastplate is thorax. That's where we get that word thorax. Usually refers to bugs and stuff, right? The thorax, the middle ground there. But this would cover um, vital organs like your heart, your intestines, your liver, your spleen, your kidney. <laughs> I mean, you can, you can survive a superficial wound in battle, right? You can get scratched and, and maybe get pierced in your arm and you'll be fine. But listen, if you get penetrated through the heart with a sword or an arrow, you're done. You're not going to be able to recover from that. In fact, that's what happened. I was just reading this story yesterday in the Old Testament in 1 Kings. King Ahab went out to battle, and he didn't want anyone to recognize that he was the king, right? So he switched armor with somebody else. He probably put on a leather breastplate or something. I don't know. And he thought, surely they... Because you're going to go after the main dude if you're in a battle, right? There's the king. Get him. And they're done. So he switched uniforms with somebody and thought he was incognito. And the Bible says this, but a bow drawn at random was fired and it found a place between his mail and his, and his uh, breastplate and it penetrated, went through, went into his vital organs and he died propped up on his chariot. You probably know the rest of that story if you've read it. But uh, listen, if you don't have the right kind of armor on that covers all your vital organs, you're going to get... You're going to get nicked and you're going to have, it's not going to be a superficial wound. You're going to bleed out. And I think, friends, that this righteousness that we're talking about, this breastplate of righteousness, because of the area that it covers, I believe that the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit had in mind this. This is the feelings that we have, the emotions we have, um, the thoughts we have about ourselves, about God, and about others. That's what is being protected here. How do you think about yourself? How do you think about God? How do you think about Christianity and your salvation? How do you think about this world that you live in? You need something to cover that and keep it protected. And that's what I believe the breastplate of righteousness is. Now, I've got to be honest with you, and I like to do this every now and then as a pastor, and tell you that when you're studying the Bible and you're reading commentaries and you're praying, you're trying to figure out, okay, what does this mean? I want to help my people understand this. I want to understand this. And I've got to be honest with you. This is a really hard piece of armor to figure out what exactly it means. I don't mean the soldier part, the analogy, I get that. But there are good, godly, spiritual Christian men and women who have written about this passage, and man, they're like in completely different places on what they believe it is. Can I share with you the different views here? And I want to tell you what I believe. Group A believes this. They believe that the righteousness that this breastplate represents is our righteousness, okay? And by that, I mean it's our behavior. It's, it's our holiness. It's, it's to what degree we are walking in obedience to God's laws and commands. That's the righteousness you put on, right? You're walking in God's will. You're obeying His law. You have integrity. You have sincerity. You're not a hypocrite, right? You don't live a life of duplicity. You don't appear to be this way on the outside and on the inside. You're like <clears throat> this. You don't have two separate lives, um, in fact, let me read to you a quote of one man I really respect and trust. And I've got to be honest, I couldn't, believe that, I couldn't believe he believes this. But he says this. I shouldn't say it like that, as if he's a heretic. That's not the case, but I, just, I really strongly disagree. He said this. This armor is a life lived in obedience to God's Word, to live in daily, moment-by-moment -moment obedience to our Heavenly Father. This part of God's armor is holy living. It is a devout and holy life, moral rectitude personal integrity. Um, and, and they reason this way. They reason, the reason they believe it's, it's that is because if this armor were the righteousness of Christ, 
that everyone is given at the moment they believe and trust Jesus, why would we be told to put it on again? It's already been put on at salvation, right? Jesus already gave you his righteousness when you believed, so there's no reason to be putting that back on. That's how they reason and argue. And they also say this, since we're talking about the devil and about temptation and about his schemes, we all know, they say, that the devil's going to get you if you're a hypocrite, right? If you're living a life of duplicity and hypocrisy and you have the secret scandal waiting to bubble up, Satan's going to get you. That's how they reason. Okay, moment of truth here. I strongly, strongly disagree with that interpretation. I will tell you why. Number one, if you are living a life of hypocrisy, I'm pretty sure Satan's okay with you. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, he's already got you exactly where he wants you. Why would he need to attack you again? I mean, if I was Satan, you're living a life of duplicity and hypocrisy, I'm thinking I really got other important, you know, uh, I've got other fish to fry right now, bigger fish, maybe more important fish than you. Secondly, um, here's the other thing. Secondly, there's three things. Um, secondly, I believe uh, dealing with the argument that Jesus already gave us his righteousness and why in the world would we need to put it on? But listen, if you take that argument and apply it to the New Testament, we are always being reminded of the benefits of the gospel, aren't we? Every epistle, every writer, every New Testament letter is telling us, remember the gospel. Remember what Jesus did for you. Meditate on these things. Soak in these things. Remind yourself of these things. Preach the gospel to yourself. It tells us over and over and over again. And I'm thinking, uh, if the argument is this will be redundant, then the rest of the New Testament falls too. Because we're always being told to do things that have already been done for us. We're always being pointed back to the finished work of Jesus to combat temptation and sin today. So that argument doesn't work for me either. But the third thing is this, and to me this is the most powerful argument, okay? Honestly, let's be reasonable here, okay? If this righteous, this breastplate of righteousness that I'm supposed to put on that covers my most vital organs, if that's my obedience and my sincerity and my integrity, and I'm going to put that on and go out in battle with confidence... Uh, I got to be honest with you, man, that's not doing much for me <laughs> because I know myself, right? I mean, you know yourself. Would you want to put on your obedient life as armor? I mean, every armor shouldn't have any chinks now, right? It doesn't, it shouldn't have any weak spots because the enemy's going to find the weak spots and they're going to get you. So to me, that whole argument just collapses in a pile of rubble because um, so many other places in the Bible were told that the only hope we have, I mean, we... We just sang about it earlier, didn't we? My anchor holds within the veil. When the storm comes, you could say the evil day that comes that this passage talks about. Another way of saying it would be this. There's a storm that's coming. And when this storm comes, when this evil day finds you, make sure and put on your behavior. Make sure and put on your obedience. Make sure and have your integrity checked up to, to, to notch 10. I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me. That doesn't encourage me. That doesn't... Um, engender confidence in me, okay? I'm thinking, I don't want to go out and face the devil with my own righteous behavior on. Because you know what? Honestly, I've tried that before and it didn't go very well. See, Satan, his very name means accuser. Did you know that? He is a prosecutor of the highest order and the highest skill. And see, Satan knows you. If you're going to put on your armor and go out and fight the devil, and it's, that armor is your behavior, you know what Satan's going to say? He's going to undo you and level you and devastate you with two words. You ready? You know what they are? Not enough. Not enough. Because the standard is perfection. 
God's law, that's the standard. If we're going to say that this is our righteousness, then that means we're obeying God's law, we're walking in holiness. See, Satan knows you, and that's where he's going to attack you. That's where he is going to accuse you. He's going to say, that's not enough. You are a worm. For example, if you're trying to pray, Satan may say something like this. Do you know? Do you know that God is holier? God is, is so holy, the Bible says he dwells in inapproachable light. And God cannot even stand to look upon iniquity. And he is of purer eyes than to tolerate evil in his presence. And look at the week you've had. Look at your thoughts. Look at that image you glanced at. Look at how you dwelled on that attractive person that walked by you. Look at the argument you have with your spouse. Look at the bitterness. Look at how you lie and cheat on your taxes. I don't, whatever it is. That's where Satan's going to aim his arson on. I want to tell you something. That breastplate of behavior that you put on, that, that ain't going to work. Now, let me be clear for a minute. Let me hit the pause button. I like to give qualifications sometimes. Does this mean I'm against holy living? Don't, please not, don't anyone leave here today and say, hey, Pastor Tommy said that walking in obedience, that's a terrible thing and that Satan's going to get you if you do it. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not against moral integrity, righteousness, holiness, obedience. Those are things you need to pursue, right? You need to pursue them, but you don't need to count on them in battle, okay? Two totally different things. Don't say I'm saying that. I'm totally not saying that. I'm just saying I don't believe that our personal obedience and holiness is what this armor represents for those reasons. I don't think it represents that at all. I strongly, strongly disagree with them, okay? Um, I believe that this armor is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The right, oh, there we go. Good. Now the sermon is going to get good. It's the righteousness that we have been given freely as an act of God's pure grace. We didn't do anything to earn it. And here's the good news, guys. You know, when you say that, take it to the fullest expression. We didn't do anything to earn it, so guess what? You can't do anything to lose it either. Man, that's good news. And people say, oh, no, pastor, I don't like it when you talk like that because people, again, they're going to go into let, God, let go and let God mode. If you, if, you if you preach the righteousness of Christ and we didn't do anything to earn it and we can't do anything to keep it and so we can't do anything to lose it, people are going to do whatever they want. Do you know that there was a man that was put in prison for 12 years because of that very argument? His name was John Bunyan. Not Paul Bunyan, John Bunyan, Okay. He wrote a, a Christian allegory that's the, the best-selling book outside of the Bible of all times, and it's called The Pilgrim's Progress. And he was preaching the righteousness of Christ in his day, and he was put in prison for 12 years while his little five-year-old girl went blind. And they came to him and they said, Bunyan, recant. Stop preaching this free grace and righteousness of Jesus. You've got to stop preaching that because if you don't stop preaching that, people are going to presume on God's grace and they're going to do whatever they want to do. And Bunyan said, no, they're not. He said, if you preach the free righteousness of Jesus Christ as, as a gift to them, they're not going to do whatever they want. They're going to do whatever he wants. And so Bunyan stayed in prison for 12 years and kept preaching the righteousness of Christ. Now listen, friends, this doesn't lead you into licentiousness, into loose living, uh, into compromise. This emboldens you and gives you courage. Because listen, think of the soldiers in between D-Day uh, and V-Day when they knew that the victory was already theirs. Don't you think that that gave them confidence? They knew, man, we're fighting a battle that's already won. Jesus has given us the victory. All we have to do, all we have to do is... Walk in, uh, walk in His will. Do what He's asked us to do. We know He is with us. He has given us this armor. The battle is over. This will encourage you. So for that reason, um, 
I believe that this is the righteousness of Christ because, listen, your armor has to cover everything. And if it's your obedience, trust me, there's going to be a chink. And a little story to, to illustrate this. I grew up on a farm. I think most of you probably know that. I'm a redneck. I grew up on a farm in Arkansas, and the farm uh, that, that we were responsible to, uh, to keep belonged to the owner of the John Deere tractor uh, store franchise, okay? Uh, we farmed his property that he owned, and so I got to drive every cool tractor you have ever seen in your life. I've driven them all. I mean, huge, humongous, eight-wheel tractors and little bitty tractors. I've driven every John Deere tractor, probably known to man from the, from the years 1980 to 1990. I drove them all. And there was one really hot summer, and it was August, and my job for that day was to go pick up a tractor. It was a 4020 uh, that didn't have a cab. And it was hot, and I was supposed to pick that tractor up, and there was a device on the back that was used to pick up big, round hay bales. You know what those are? So this was my job. Uh, tractor on the left there, that's a 4020, doesn't have a cab. And when I went to pick it up, uh, there was an older gentleman on that property, and his name was Linwood Wells, and he said, look, why don't you get that, cap, that tractor with a cab? He said, it's hot, your dad won't care. And I said, no, that's fine, I don't mind the heat. Uh, you'll have to take this uh, attachment off of this tractor and put it on this one, don't bother. He said, no, I insist. He said, let me help you. We'll, we'll switch them over. So within five, five minutes, I was on my way. I had an air conditioner. I had a radio. I was happy, man. So I go out to the property, and there's like 20 or 30 big round hay bales. And they had been in this field for about a year. And it was, they were soggy. They were rotten. They were an eyesore. And we were about to farm that, that land, that 40 acres. So my job was to back this tractor up with that attachment, lift these hay bales up and move them. So the very first hay bale that I backed up to, I, I, this tractor had, you know, the cab had windows so you could see. I backed it up, I, I lifted up the hay bale and it busted in half. And I kid you not, about a gazillion bumblebees swarmed. Now I'm allergic. I'm allergic to, to stings of any kind, like terribly allergic to them. These bumblebees swarmed this tractor cab so fast, I couldn't even see. I had to turn the windshield wipers on. And some of them were getting in the cab, and I was stomping them. I want to tell you, I found a gear. I found a gear in that tractor that I don't even know. It was like 17th gear. And I high-tailed it out of there. And there were still bumblebees coming in there. And I told my, I told my, my mom and dad about it, and we were just rejoicing. Um, can you imagine if I would have had that 40-20? I look, man, God protected me. There are so many ways. I read years later that bumblebees are not like honeybees. They don't have barbs in their stinger that kill them when they sting you. It takes a lot for a, a honeybee to commit to stinging. Did you know that? It kills them. So honeybees or bumblebees don't have that. They can sting you repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. So I was just grateful to God. But here, here's what I'm trying to tell you. You want something that covers you completely, that nothing can get through and penetrate, right? And I'm telling you right now, if you're going to put on your moral righteousness, your integrity, you might as well go get that 40-20 tractor without a cab and wear that because you're just as safe and you're just as protected and you're just as vulnerable as I would have been in that tractor if you believe that this is your own moral upstandingness and your moral rectitude, as one man said. I just don't, I'm not buying that. Not buying that at all. Because this is what Satan does. One person said this, and I think this is a great quote. When Satan comes at you and whispers in your ear, he doesn't say, believe in me. You know what Satan wants you to do? Believe in yourself. <laughs> this is what Satan wants. He would love it if you believe in your own moral power and rectitude. You go ahead, you put that on, and you go out and face the devil who's been watching human beings for thousands of years and has studied human behavior and is a very skilled accuser. I mean, he is a lawyer of all lawyers. 
And you can't argue with the devil. Have you ever tried that? I'm not saying talk out loud. But you're trying to reason with the devil that you're a better person than you actually are? You ever try that? It doesn't work. That never works. Martin Luther knew that. You know, Luther, Luther felt like he had uh, personal conversations with the devil because of the work he was doing. And maybe he did. I don't know. He was the reformer that rescued uh, the gospel from a place of darkness and brought it back to the church. But Luther said this, When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, what would you tell the devil if he said that? Would you say, no, no, really, you, know, you haven't seen the good things I've done. You know? No, this is what Luther said. Tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? <laughs> now, I love Luther, don't you? What of it? For I know one, he said, who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? The song we just sang, my hope is built on nothing less, say it with me, than Jesus' blood and my behavior, right? <laughs> no, if that's your hope, friends, that's, a, that's sinking sand. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And then it goes on to say, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean or trust, get my music wrong here, in Jesus' name. Now listen, the sweetest frame. You know, the hymn writers, man, they knew reality, didn't they? And they knew their heart and they knew the Bible. Haven't we all had sweet frames of mind? Haven't you had a great experience with God? Haven't you had a great morning of quiet time, a great time of prayer, maybe a revival in your heart and in your family? And that's wonderful. Those are ecstatic experiences that we should pursue and pray for and enjoy, but you don't trust in them. <laughs> I dare not trust the sweetest frame. This is not the breastplate of experience. It's not the breastplate of feelings. It's not the breastplate of a great quiet time. This is the breastplate of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which you didn't do anything to secure and you can't do anything to lose. And that's where your hope is built. That's where your hope ought to be aimed. It better be because Satan and his minions, all the demons, I don't think Satan's ever tempted me in my life because I'm not important enough for him, but I guarantee you demons of hell Pursue church planners and churches like ours that preach the gospel. Um, and I'm not banking on my moral integrity and, and rectitude when that day comes. This armor covers your heart and your guts. Um, <laughs> and, the, and those, are again, represent the ways we think about God, the way we think about ourselves. So this is, uh, this is one of the other things I wanted to talk about. So let's get to the nitty-gritty here. What might righteousness be? You know, because if you're not going to put on uh, the righteousness of Christ, let's talk about what righteousness is. Because listen, even people who don't go to church, even people who are not religious, they're trusting in something. Everybody has righteousness. I want to help you understand what that means. I love Tim Keller's definition of righteousness because he says this, righteousness is the thing that you are looking to that will make you hold your head up high and say, I'm not ashamed of anything. Look at God and look at the world and say, I'm not ashamed so everybody in here has righteousness, something you're looking to or trusting in for your righteousness, okay? Um, and I want to tell you what mine used to be. I, I don't really don't like talking about myself. It seems like I do a lot, but you guys hold me accountable. If I do too much and put myself in, you know, a heroic light, then, then condemn me. Just being honest with you. I grew up uh, in the South, and football was, was an idol of mine, and track and weightlifting. I was an athlete, and I loved those, those things. Probably kept me out of a lot of trouble, uh, but it didn't do my heart a lot of good because that was my righteousness. I mean, I pursued... I was telling Melissa the other day, I was so serious. You're going to laugh at me. 
I was so serious about my athletic career, the short-lived little athletic career I had, that I didn't even really date in high school. I didn't. The only reason I didn't run around and, and drink and do drugs and sleep around in high school, honest to God, this is the reason, I thought that that would jeopardize and hurt my chances of being an excellent athlete. That's the only reason. It wasn't because I loved God. Uh, it was because I didn't want to get in trouble and I wanted people to think well of me. But I was that serious in my athletic pursuits. And I ran track and I lifted weights and I played football. And here's the funny thing. You know, we all get, you get ribbons for that and little trophies and whatnot. And it was a year or two after I married Sarah, we went home to visit my parents and we stayed there for a week. And my mom said, hey, honey, I uh, forgot to tell you, I cleaned out one of your closets and I put a bunch of your stuff in a shoebox. And she said, it's in the closet in there. So I walk in the closet and I get this shoebox out, okay? And this thing is filled, you know, it, it was filled, it was overflowing with ribbons and trophies. No, all of my righteousness as a teenager was in that shoebox. Every bit of it is in that shoe. And it's funny when you think about it. I mean, think about it. This shoebox contained my righteousness. That's everything that I lived for for about eight years of my life. Everything was in that shoebox. And it was absolutely, completely worthless. I could probably give it to my 20-month-old son, and he would, if he could talk, say thank you and dump it and play with the box. You know, it's about the, that's about how worthful it is, all right? That's about how much value it has. Lots of blue ribbons and red ribbons and little trophies, and there were letters from my football jacket that I never sewed on because I never got a football jacket. I couldn't afford one. And there were all kinds of stuff that, that this is why I live. This is what I wanted to hold my head up high and say, Tommy Clayton, athlete, football player, track star. I matter. I'm somebody. That was my righteousness. And here it was. I was holding it in my hands and just realizing how worthless it is. I just had to chuckle. And you think, oh, that's funny, pastor. You know, you, know, you were a teenage kid and thankfully those things, you were, that was just immature. No, no, no. Listen, listen. I want to ask you a question, okay? What's in your shoebox? Because everybody out here has a shoebox right now. All of you do. Every single person in here has a shoebox. What is it? Is it that, man, I'm a great mother, or I'm a great father, I'm a great husband, I'm a great employee? I like what uh, J.D. Greer said. He said, we all find something that sets us apart from others. We're smarter. We get into a certain kind of school. We have a good job and make lots of money. We're a good parent. We're more faithful in our religion than others. He says, we will use just about anything to establish our worth. People who aren't even religious do this just as much as religious people. Atheists feel like they are fair-minded and good citizens. Hollywood stars pride themselves as social activists. We, we're all like this. Even Tony Soprano from that series, he said, I may be a killer, but I'm a good son. <laughs> I mean, everybody has righteousness that they trust in, right? So... I didn't outgrow that, guys. All I did was switch shoeboxes. That's all I did. And I'll give you another example, okay? Easter Sunday, here. Man, I'm so embarrassed to even tell you this, but I love you, and anything I can share with you that will help you, I'm going to share it. So check this out. Do you guys remember on Easter Sunday, I was down there with a camera, my phone. Did you see me taking pictures? Do you know why I was taking pictures on Easter Sunday here? Can somebody want to venture a guess? what righteousness a preacher may be tempted to trust in. Because there were a lot of people here on Easter, right? There were a lot of warm bodies here that had pulses. And that's good. it makes a preacher feel good when people come to hear him preach, right? As if that's the only reason you come here. And I was taking pictures. I went to the back and I took every possible angle. I tried to, <laughs> this is so humiliating, I tried to arrange my camera in such a way that the empty seats were either out or that I could put them on my software program and crop them out. 
I mean, if there was a way for me to, to airbrush people into the empty seats, I probably would have done it. Isn't that crazy? I'm just being honest with you, man. That was my, that's my righteousness. That's my righteousness. Hey, look at all these people that came here on Easter. That's my righteousness. You know what I did? I was telling Melissa, I was so embarrassed because I saw a lot of you fellowshipping. We had breakfast out front. People were greeting in the parking lot. You know what would have been a great thing to take pictures of? That genuine, authentic Christian fellowship that flows out of knowing that we're forgiven by Christ. Taking pictures of people laughing together, praying together, sharing a meal. No, I didn't do that. I took a picture of the crowd. How pathetic is that, man? How pathetic? And I had to confess my sin to God and repent and ask Him to forgive me and cleanse me, you know? But we all have shoeboxes, guys. We, we all do. We all feel uh, this overwhelming need to justify ourselves before others. Even animals do this. Did you know after the fall of man, do you know what animals do? Um, there's a hognose snake. How many people have ever played with a hognose snake? They're harmless. And probably because they're harmless and small, do you know what they do? They pretend that they're a cobra when you find them. Sometimes they pretend that they're dead, so you leave them alone. <laughs> Hognose snakes, they have a defense mechanism. Seriously, pick one up and, they, and they, they hood out really big. You know why? They want you to think that they're somebody. They're not, so you'll leave them alone and back away. Animals do this. Puffer fish do this. Frogs do this. They blow themselves up with air, so you're like, dang, man, you're legit. <laughs> you're a legit toad and leave them alone. And look, we're just like them. We are just like them. We all have things that we cling to, this faulty righteousness that we think is going to protect us somehow from the accusations of others, from our own criticism, from the enemy. And listen, guys, it's, it's not going to work. It doesn't work. It fails us. When the evil day comes, if that's what you're trusting in, it's not going to work. It was never intended to work. That's why Tim Keller, going back to the sermon illustration, um, or the, the Easter illustration. Tim Keller said in the early days when he planted Redeemer Church in Manhattan, in the heart of New York City, and only just several hundred people would come, he would say, he would have to remind himself when he was walking up the pulpit to preach, he said he would whisper under his breath, they are not my righteousness. And man, I have to do that too sometimes, you know? He did that when hardly anybody came, and now there's 7,000 people that go there, and he still does it. Because listen, if that's what you're trusting in for your righteousness, here's the problem with that, okay? If I'm trusting in that box of ribbons for my righteousness, the more blue ribbons I have, the more first place ribbons I have, man, I'm going to feel really confident about myself, right? Like, I'm killing this thing, man. Like, all the colleges are writing me letters, want me to come and run track for them. I'm killing it. And then I break my ankle. What happens? Oh, yeah. Didn't account for that, right? I mean, if you're trusting in how many people show up, if five people show up, you're done, right? Or if 500 people show up, you're probably done. Because Satan is so crafty and so clever, that's what he does. Look at you, you're not reaching the city. Who are you kidding? You're not doing it. All you do is just write sermons and stay in your office. You're not doing any good at all. You're not making an impact. You're not making a dent. This is my city. I mean, that's the way. Or, or he puffs you up. You're a wonderful pastor. The whole world wants to hear you pray. I mean, that's how Satan's so crafty. And that's how he comes at us and accuses us. So just make sure that your righteousness, the breastplate that you put on is the righteousness of Christ. It's something that theologians call alien righteousness. You know what that word means? It's got nothing to do with you. It's outside of you. It's something that was done for you and something that was given to you that you put on and you wear 
and you know I'm protected. And no matter what Satan says, when he says you're an unworthy worm, you, you shouldn't even, God shouldn't even tolerate you coming into his presence. You know what you say? You take him to the word and you say, look, I'm not presuming to come in God's presence based on anything I've done anyway or anything I haven't done. No, I'm coming to God based on what Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 10 says, uh, that he has a throne of grace. And I can come to it boldly. Why? Because I've been given access. I have access to God the Father because of Jesus. This is his righteousness. And go ahead, devil, give it your best shot. Because this is impenetrable, my friend. Not that the devil's your friend, but you get the idea. (laughs) There's nothing Satan can do that can penetrate that breastplate so long as it's the righteousness of Christ. There's a song that we sing sometimes. Uh, it says, when Satan, when Satan tempts me to despair, and he does, he, he has, he will again. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there. See who? Who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul was counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. Man, what a great reminder that it's the righteousness of Jesus and therefore, no matter what, listen, I just, I sensed when I came in here today and before I came up here to preach, I sensed just overwhelming sadness in this room. I was being honest with you that there is a lot going on in the lives of the people that are here this morning. I want to to encourage you, friend. This is the best news that you could ever tell yourself is that you stand righteous and just and blameless in the presence of God because of Jesus Christ. There is nothing you could ever do to make God love you any more than He does right now because God loves Jesus perfectly and you're clothed with Jesus, right? Right? There's nothing you can do to ever lose that, and there's nothing you can do to ever improve that. That's good news. When you're disappointed, when you're struggling, when you're sick, when you're weak, when you've fallen, and you've given in to temptation, put the righteousness of Christ on. And say to Satan, this is his righteousness, not mine. There's nothing you can do to assault me or assail me. That's the best news in the world, friends. And that comes, all of these pieces of armor, I believe all of them are benefits of the gospel. We're cashing in on what Jesus did at the cross. Every piece of armor is because of him. That's why this can't possibly be our obedience because our obedience, is, it's got chinks in it, right? 